Hello and welcome back to the Soundwise Collection interview series. My name is Michael Coleman, and this week I had the pleasure of talking with scoring mixer Frank Wolf about his recent work on Disney's Beauty and the Beast, directed by Bill Condon. Frank has a long working history collaborating with composer Alan Menken, and we discussed what it was like to record and mix many of the beloved songs from this 1991 Disney classic. We also discussed the process of recording several of the new songs featuring an all-star cast, including Emma Watson, Dan Stevens, Luke Evans, Josh Gad, Ian McGregor, Ian McKellen, and Emma Thompson. I hope you enjoy our talk. For you, Frank, it just seems you've had an incredible career and you've had your hands in so many amazing projects. And I see, you know, just from the past few years, even that you've you've been involved with a handful of musicals. Um, I see Hairspray on there. Um, yeah, so historically, I started out doing records. There was also, a, there were a bunch of Disney's in a row. Um, Hercules, um, Tarzan, Brother Bear. Um, there's a couple of Pixar movies that are arguably, are they musicals or not? Um, Toy Story. I mean, there are songs in it, but it's not exactly a musical. Uh, and Toy Story 2, both, in both of them, you know, because Randy was the composer, they also had him write songs. Um, they're not really musicals per se. Well, Mulan um, is, I'd say. Mulan definitely is, and, um, <laughs> yeah. and and that's a case where I did all the songs, but I did not do the underscore. Yeah, amazing. Um, Jerry Goldsmith did the underscore, and he had his own team. Just for some context, even for myself, I'd love to hear, where were you recording in the studio? What type of studio work were you doing, and how long were you doing that work until you transitioned into doing these feature films? Well, so um, I started out, I actually started out as a tech uh, I worked at a, a place on uh, in West Los Angeles called the Village Recorder. Oh, sure. Um, I had been a musician. I studied. Uh, I changed from music to um, physics and ele- electrical engineering uh, at UCLA. And when I got out, they hired me as a tech. So I had acoustics, and I had music, and I had electrical engineering. And so uh, by the time I got out of school, I already had a little demo studio, and I was working at the Village. And um, I, I ended up demoing a band that got a record deal, and then I became an engineer. And so I've been an engineer ever since, and that was uh, 1979, 1980 okay. ish. Yeah, so, sure. <clears throat> and since that point, I, I started out doing a lot of records. Um, and I always find it interesting how the you know how I can sort of chronicle my path. Um, I was doing a lot of demo work, and then I did a demo with a guy who was a big um, arranger, producer, musician, and he got called to do a date with um, Johnny Mathis, and they didn't have an engineer. And the next thing I know, I'm working with Johnny Mathis and the composer named Michelle Columbier, who unfortunately isn't with us anymore. But... um, you know, step by step. So then I was working with with Michelle and Johnny Mathis, and both Peter Asher and George Massenberg heard some of my work, and they went, wow, this is great. And I started working with Peter. And so the next thing I know, I'm working with Peter Asher on, um, I mixed part of the 10,000 Maniacs first record. Oh, amazing. uh, In My Tribe. It's a great album, yeah. Which was a fantastic record. George Massenberg did most of it, and he ran out of time. He had heard my work and said, oh, you should you know, he told Peter, you should have Frank finish it. So then subsequently, I spent a bunch of years working with Peter on Diana Ross and Cher and 
uh, uh, Neil Diamond and um, Barbara Streisand and a bunch of big artists. And then uh, eventually, doing that work, uh, Peter was also managing Randy Newman, and I did a record with Randy Newman, and then Randy did a movie called Avalon in the late 80s, and he asked me to do that. And that was really the, the point where I started doing more movies. So late 80s, um, I ended up doing a bunch of stuff with Randy for a lot of years. Uh, and, and, you know, Toy Story ended up getting me over to Disney, and then suddenly I was working with Alan Menken and Phil Collins and doing a lot of the Disney feature animation stuff for a bunch of years. Yeah. So that's sort of how it, how it went. And it was a... I, I mean, I look back at it, and it was kind of a magical progression that... You know, I didn't have, I, I didn't have like, oh, I'm going to do movies. Right. Uh, I, I just wanted to do music that I loved to do. And I wanted to be in the studio with great musicians and great musicianship. And, you know, I found myself working with the likes of Randy Newman and Alan Menken and Mark Shaman and Terrence Blanchard. And these guys are all world-class, you know, composers, songwriters, musicians. Um, so I consider myself <laughs> pretty damn lucky. You know, I mean, obviously, I must, I must be good at what I do. Yeah, no, <laughs> but I, also, it you know, yeah, it does not hurt to have these types of artists to collaborate with. It's fantastic. Yeah, and and you know, I got into it because I love music and I love being a part of that collaborative effort. Mm -hmm. um, and I found that I wasn't, you know, I played piano well, but I wasn't going to be like the next whoever. Yeah, and. I'm not a great songwriter, although, you know, I certainly know all the chords, and, you know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know all the chords, but you know, right, what I, mean. right, right, yeah. I, I know, you know music, your way around, yeah. but I found an, I found a niche, which is, you know, engineering. And if I pat myself on the back, I have to say, you know, I, I collaborate as a co-producer in many of the projects I work on, yeah. whether I'm credited or not. Um, and I think the people that I work with would, you know, quickly agree. Yeah. Um, and so I've been I've been fortunate to work on a lot of really great projects. I'd be curious to ask you of just how it was then at a time when digital was not as uh, as often seen in studios. What did that? How did that change the process of recording? Oh, it wasn't at all. Yeah. I mean, when I started, there was no digital. Yeah. Um, in fact, when I started, there was no MIDI. Yeah. Sure. Oh my gosh. Um, okay. You know, it, it, the the first record that I engineered when when the guys wanted to have a big beefy keyboard sound that the keyboard player had to play a piano and then double it with the roads yeah and then double it with some synthesizer and then it kind of got bigger and bigger right uh, there was no midi yeah uh, there were no drum machines really to speak of and as we were working on it you know a lot of that stuff came in triggering and roger lynn drum machine and mm -hmm. uh and then eventually they the, this sort of wacky thing called sound tools <laughs> which you know predated pro tools and, you know, being the tech head that I am, I, I, I dove into it. Um, I guess I should say there was also, there were also digital tape machines okay. at that point, but they were still basically, not basically, they still were tape machines. Yeah. It was just, it was recording in a different format. Um, but essentially you didn't have, you didn't have the ability to really manipulate the sound the way you do in a, in a Pro Tools platform or a sequencer. Um, but then eventually sound tools came in and it was a stereo version of what was to become Pro Tools. And I, I dove into that and I was using it for mixing and 
little bit of processing here and there and rough mixing certainly in practice edits and all that and then when when uh when um pro tools came out i mean i immediately dove in and um i really haven't looked back i i miss some of the tape mm -hmm. stuff mm -hmm. um uh i have to say i miss the fact that you really had to have some training and some ability to be able to you know work with the tools that we had back back in those days um anybody anybody who can operate a computer now um can operate pro tools but it doesn't make them a musician and it doesn't make them musical sure that's a good point yeah. uh you know i mean i sound like an old guy when i say that but well i mean well i mean there's there's something that really comes from obviously having your hands in so many projects over the years you can't replicate that and you can't just get that uh from you know walking straight out of a you know a technical program or a, a college program of some of these things are just Almost definitely. Yeah, it only comes with experience. And that's what I wanted to ask you is, what are some of the things that you see, some of those fundamentals that you carried from the very beginning and you're still thinking about today when you walk into a session? Um, I mean, it really goes all the way back since I, I, I told you when I left the music department, I, I moved into physics. I studied acoustics. Oh, great. And so literally when I'm in an acoustical environment, I still innately sort of clap my hands and look <laughs> around and... Yeah. and sort of get what I'm going to get from the room that I'm in. And, and I mean, that informs a lot as far as how I may be able to mic something to my advantage. Uh, so, I mean, it does go all the way back there. And then I think the other really big thing is, you know, in those days we wanted to try to capture as much as we could when it was actually happening. So if you had, uh, if you, especially with an orchestral situation, if you have an orchestra playing and they're doing great and, you know, and it sounds great, and the, and everything, especially over a few days, the the sort of gestalt of the mix, it it refines to the point where y you don't have to do much; it just sounds fantastic. And I always print a five point one mix when I'm doing film stuff, you know, a live sort of full down mix. And there have been many times where I was unable to beat it um, because what's going on in the moment is the magic and it's captured that's where i feel like i'm part of the collaborative effort and i'm part of the process um so whatever they're playing and whatever i'm doing to it by the time it gets down to a to a sort of live mix it's fantastic yeah and it and it's you know you wouldn't you wouldn't want to you wouldn't want to change it and a lot of times i haven't been able to beat it and uh, you said magic and, and all i can think about is this the most recent project that you've worked on with Beauty and the Beast for you, how, when did you first find out about it, and what were your initial thoughts about having your hands in on this project? Well, so that's actually a really interesting uh, amalgam of what I was just talking about—the uh -huh. sort of gestalt of the moment, but also a lot of the technical stuff that's come into play over the years. That you know, frankly, our recording process has allowed us to do. Um, some of the songs are full live orchestra, live, one performance, you know, not recording brass separately, not recording perks separately. Mm -hmm. And there is a live magic that happens when you do that. Mm -hmm. But the, the downside of that is that it's not as controllable. And uh, in, this, in, the, in today's sort of music experience in a movie, people anticipate and expect to be able to you know, sort of yank things around in a way that may not have been performed. 
So, you know, suddenly a, a, a uh, I don't know, a clarinet melody, you know, sticks out on top of a very loud orchestra, which yeah. y- you can't do in real life. I mean, that, that's what I was, I mean, that's what I was curious about is like, what, what information did Alan share with you and how much research did you do on your own in terms of the aesthetic of what was captured before? And was there even a concern or, underst- or a, a, um, a conversation about? There was some talk about it. Um, I've been working with Alan for a very long time. So a lot of it goes um, unspoken. Okay. Um, but it was the first time that I was working with this director and he had some uh, some different ideas and 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 Matt and you know these other guys involved Chris Benstead um, also brought you know they bring a different um, uh, how do I put it maybe more aggressive orchestral sound than um, a completely 100% natural 96 piece orchestra playing so you know on a lot of the movie we did uh, we did part of the orchestra at one time the strings and winds uh, and then we overdub brass, and then we overdub percussion. And it gives us a lot more control. And if you really want to beef it up and have the brass, you know, kicking your butt yeah. in, in an aggressive moment, you can do. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, or if you've got a flurry of strings, while the brass are playing triple forte, you can still turn the brass down and bring the strings out. Mm-hmm. You really couldn't do that, you know, unless you took the time while recording to get exactly what you wanted. And then you really couldn't change your mind. So I guess how early on was like because so much of these pieces are are I imagine were recorded so that they could have them on production so that they would have playback. Was I mean how did how did that discussion go? What was the timeline for it? Again, that's a that's a flow over a lot of time. About two years ago was our first recording. We went to we all went to London. Mm-hmm. Uh, we recorded some basic tracks and a lot of the lead vocals and a lot of the initial background vocals, but not live orchestra and not huge choirs. Okay. Um, And then as we got arrangements from various orchestrators and from Michael Cosrin and, and from, you know, Matt and Chris working with Bill Condon, the director, uh, we ended up with arrangements uh, that then in MIDI we could, uh, and I say we, whether it was one of the orchestrators or Chris Benstead, would take that MIDI and create uh, sort of mock orchestral tracks, and that's what all the shooting was was done to. Okay. So there were no li- there was no live orchestra prior to uh, <clears throat> prior to the shoot. It was more of like a I don't I don't know if it's like a glorified click track, but it's something just to give people a sense of. No, it's or... not a glorified click track at all. Yeah. It's a full it's a full written arrangement of what the orchestra is meant to be. Okay knowing that it could change okay. and a MIDI implement- implementation of that with, you know, great samples. Yeah. And, you know, it sounds, it sounds damn good. It sounds, yeah. uh, you know, on first listen, you know, you might go, wow, is that a real orchestra? Is that samples? They're, they're really, they've gotten very, very good. Right. They don't breathe the same way a live orchestra does, but they're, they're damn good. Yeah. And, and you can present the song well enough that anybody that's watching the movie or editing or doing work on it can go, okay, this is what it's going to be like. Yeah, they can feel it. So, so I guess for you guys, when it came to obviously a lot of what the work you're talking about doing, which is recording these vocalists, how do you guys manage that and how much time is given, how much time, how much consideration? Like, what is it like to work with an incredible ensemble of singers? Yeah, it's pretty amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Um, uh, 
most of them had, uh, you know, a couple of days in the studio to come in and then time later on to either do it again or improve it or change it. Um, uh, you know, for example, Emma came in and sang, Emma Watson, that is, came in and sang for a couple or three days and, and then we would comp and tweak and and then she would come back and, and, you know, hey, we still think we could do a little bit better on this verse or that, you know, those two lines. And then once they were in shooting, um, she picked up some more stuff then that, that I didn't do. And then in post, there we, we spent a couple more days doing more vocals for lip sync purposes. And also, uh, you know, she was stronger and, and knew her. Uh, knew her character better. Sure. And well, and, and how does it work then? I mean, Emma, I mean, Carrie has a, a, an incredible amount of songs, but also there's, I'm just looking here, even Luke Evans, Josh Gad, uh, you know, Stanley Tucci. Yeah. Like everyone so had, Luke you know, and Josh and, and Dan Stevens uh, and uh, Ewan McGregor. I mean, they yeah. all have, they all have uh, at least one big piece. Right. Um, again, we had them all. We did a couple or three weeks around two years ago mm-hmm. and that was sort of the 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 basis for the you know for all of it yeah um and then uh you know little bits and pieces were picked up along the way or one of the actors you know said hey i really know my character a lot better now can i come in and re-sing mm-hmm. um and then each time that would happen one or all of us would end up you know sort of comping it and mm-hmm. putting together you know, pick vocals from the new one and maybe mm. a few lines that were still better from the original. Mm-hmm. And then there's, of course, trying to match sounds from one studio to another, one mic mm. to another, one day to another. Right. Um, trying to make it sound cohesive. Um, so again, there's a lot of work that went into it. Um, you know, I would venture to say that, you know, in the hundreds of hours between me mm. and Chris Benstead and Matt Sullivan, mm-hmm. um, and we had a couple other music editors that were also tweaking stuff and doing lip syncing. I mean, it was, it was quite a lot of <laughs> quite a lot of work. Well, for you, I guess when you are recording vocals, you know, what do you, how, how do you like to mic stuff? What is some of the the signal chain? Do you EQ in in line? Like, what what, what have you learned? Or the uh, do's and I don'ts? do. Uh, so, and again, that that's sort of a more old school recording. You try to go for something that's sounding good right now, not thinking you know you don't want to you don't want to um lock yourself in too hard to you know sort of very hard compression for example that has a a definite sound yeah but you definitely want it to sound you know as good as it can in the moment Mm -hmm. so eq and a little compression yes um u47 microphones c12s uh uh 251s those were sort of the three and u67s those are the three or four main Mm-hmm. main mics we used for vocals and um, what's the combination of hardware versus software plugins uh well when it's when we're actually recording there's no software plugins at all okay. when we're actually recording uh oh a neve mic preamp and either a neve or a gml mm-hmm. equalizer and you know something reasonably soft of in compression uh, uh an la2a or an 1176 sure. or you know i i'm a big fan of the gml compressor but um, there's not that many of them around. <laughs> um, I mean, they're just, there aren't, they're, they're quite specific. Yeah. So then, you know, once you have a basic, once you have a basic, uh, vocal sound and, and you try to match it as closely as you can, if there was previous work done. And also if it's in post, you listen to some dialogue and try to get it at least close to the dialogue so that it, 
it feathers in and out of, um, you know, dialogue to song and back to dialogue smoothly because that's also a, a big part of it. That's why I say it's a it it the thing I like about music musicals is that they're very challenging, <laughs> uh, and there's a lot of levels to it. And you know, for me, I like to challenge. Yeah, you know, you're ha- you're handling a lot of stuff. There's a lot of people that get their hands on it, um, and and uh, you know, it really need it passes through my hands many times before it's finally done. So for you, I guess, um, are you working closely? Who is your point of contact that basically you are, are you going to Bill? Are you going to the producers? Like what's the kind of the Um, collaboration of it all? My main point of contact was Matt Sullivan. Okay. um, Just because he was closest to the director, closest to um, Chris Benstead, who was also doing a lot of editing. Yeah. Um, Matt is sort of the, you know, in that way, the kind of the center of the spider web. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, but then I've also been w- with friends with Alan for, you know, God, it seems like it's 25 years. <laughs> yeah, maybe. And so, you know, if I ever have any issues, I, you know, just call him up on the phone and go, you know, I'm going to send you 25 seconds of this vocal. Tell me what you think. Yeah. Um, but a lot of, uh, most times it went from Matt and then Matt would sort of, you know, it would go from Matt to Bill or to Alan or to, you know, whoever else the powers that be, mm-hmm. uh, back to Disney. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's such a big project. You really sort of have to have, you have to have a, a, a path or, mm. or things get, um, dropped between the cracks. And something that I think, you know, what happens when you have these films that are, you know, for me as a child growing up with beating the beast, I know every song, I know every word, I know every flurry of, you know, instrumentation and so right. familiar. And then when I saw it again, it was very, you don't know how to treat some of the new material, but I really found that I loved it. I, I felt some of the songs, I think of um, this one, Days in the Sun, and, and most, for sure, this one, Evermore, with Dan Stevens, who plays the Beast, were just beautiful and really well done. What, what were some of those conversations? How did those evolve? Was that old material that found a place, or is that all new? No, uh, those were those were new songs, and, and believe me, they got raked over the coals, uh, <laughs> you know, many times. There were many versions. There were uh many voices i'm not one of the louder voices as far as you know yeah that's the one right uh that you know that's that's the better version or i hate that second verse yeah um that's uh uh that's above my pay grade most of the time sure sure i mean i certainly i'll certainly voice my opinion if i'm if if i'm asked or if i'm in the room yeah um but a lot of that was between uh so mitchell lieb at disney who you know also is in the center of Mm-hmm. everything that's going on and listening and and uh, you know being part of the decision making you know how is this song yeah. is it carrying the character is it um is it presenting the mood we want uh, mm-hmm. is it really saying what we want it to say <clears throat> and the beast song forevermore went through a lot of versions mm. a lot of versions a lot of rewrites a lot of different melodies mm-hmm. uh, i think at one point the chorus wasn't even the chorus okay. I mean, just a lot of changes and you're just just going to have to wait 20 years until the legacy record comes out and all the demos come out on it, and then you'll be able to hear all the all the different versions. <laughs> I mean, what, what did you find in terms of just your conversations with Alan in terms of revisiting a film that he had done in what, 91? I mean, it's 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 been some time. Yeah, but, 91. Yeah. It, it, it was interesting for him. I think that 
in some ways it let him, it allowed him, the fact that he had already had this sort of iconic vision of that movie back then, mm-hmm. um, he was a little more comfortable with, you know, sort of taking Bill's vision and, and letting, you know, trusting that his team mm-hmm. were delivering music that he would listen to and go, my God, that's great. You know, where, where are the uh, tissues? Yeah. Um, which is, you know, that's that's great. In fact, it was very funny because when he first, you know, he was called in in New York to hear a, a playback when the movie was pretty close to being finished mm-hmm. in the final dub. And, uh, you know, they played the whole movie and the lights came up and, and he said uh, something about, uh, uh, I need tissues. And somebody <laughs> thought he said, I have issues. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, and they were like, oh, fuck, you know, we're in such big trouble now. Yeah. You know, what's he going to say? And he's like, no, I need tissues. I haven't stopped crying for uh, 20 yeah. minutes. It, it, you know, it's it, it's a big experience, this movie. Yeah. What did you find... Um for you was just kind of uh, I'm even looking at that like were you involved with some of the other stuff there's these tracks that people are these these phenomenal artists are having to pass at the Celine Dion Ariana Grande John Legend Josh Groban I mean, I mean was that at all on your radar yeah so at the first of all those were done in the last it's hard to imagine you know we worked on the movie for two years I worked on the movie for two years it was done in the last two months okay you know oh sh- we, let's get so and so yeah um, the Celine Dion track um i let's see what did i do i I recorded the strings that are on it and i mixed the version that's in the movie okay um umberto gatica who is the producer Mm -hmm. mixed the version that's on the record okay and he produced the vocal and did the rest of it yeah uh the josh groban i recorded all the music Mm -hmm. um not the vocal yeah i mixed both versions the 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 film version and the record version and the Ariana Grande, John Legend tune, I, uh, what did I, I did very little on that. I recorded okay. the strings and the horns. I was actually supposed to mix it and then I was unable to do so because of scheduling. Sure. Um, and, and Ron works with one particular guy who's fantastic, mm. uh, Peter Mokrin. Mm. He's a primarily a record mixer, pop yeah. mixer. And uh, I'm a huge fan of his work. So, you know, when Ron said, can you do these dates? And I was like, oh, damn, I can't. <laughs> yeah. And he called Peter. I was like, oh, you know, fine. Yeah. For, and for you, for music mixing, when I mean, you, you, do you only consider the front wall your space? Or are you actually considering what's coming off the wall and going into surrounds and everywhere else? Oh, no, I'm considering everything. I'm not mixing in Atmos. Yeah. Uh, yet, I guess okay. I should say. Yeah. Um, a couple of guys do, but mostly... Uh, either five one or seven one. Mm-hmm. Uh, Beauty was all five point one. Right. Uh, but yeah, I have a I have a five point one system at home, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, you know I spend a lot of time up here. Mm-hmm. It's not a not a studio studio. It's a room that's been converted over, and it's, mm-hmm. I was just lucky that it sounds great. Yeah. Um, so I I didn't have to like tear ceilings out and walls out. And sure, sure. A whole number. Which I have done. No, I mean everyone has, you know, house. yeah, the the house or the 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 garage in the backs of the the house or whatever that room is, you know, they've converted. Well, I mean, I had a proper studio back in the days when I was working with Peter Asher on all those records. <laughs> you know, at that time, I had a proper studio in my house. It yeah. had been a, it had been a garage, but it was definitely a converted. It was a studio, you know, yeah. proper acoustic environment. Um, here, I. I don't do any recording here or hardly any. Sure. Um, I mean, I'm recording my voice right now, and that's about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. Um, but as far as mixing goes, um, you know, I, I 
I have no limitations at all, and it's a you know it's a funky little room that makes me feel happy. What do you have for your near fields or your setup there? What are you listening through? Um, I have five uh, SRM10B tannoys. They're the really old tannoys from from the eighties. Okay. I also have three ATC one hundred. Oh yeah. Um, uh, and and subs, and then I've got a a um, Sunfire sub. Mm-hmm. So what I usually use at home most of the time is my tannoys because it's not that big of a space, <laughs> uh, and I've been working with the speakers for so long I know, you just know um, them, exactly yeah. what they're going to do. And in this case, <clears throat> in this case, the the um, you know a lot of the songs we started the mixes at Mark Knopfler's studio in London, um, mm-hmm. or just outside of London, um, mm-hmm. called British Grove. Mm-hmm. And uh, if I may give a plug, it's mm-hmm. it's it's the most beautiful, mm-hmm. well appointed well-maintained um studio one one of the two or three best that i've ever worked in in my life it's just spectacular is it private or public uh it's you can book it it's yeah a, it's a public studio oh, cool. um it has two rooms one one bigger one more mixing um it's just you know mark approached it like you know how would he want to work and he's got all these really cool old you know neves and neve consoles and you know I mean, he. I think he has the console that Pink Floyd recorded oh my gosh. the wall on. I mean, I mean, it's just unbelievable the yeah. kind of gear he has there, and it's all absolutely perfectly maintained. Um, and from a, from the point of view of an old tech, yeah, uh, you know, I know what that takes, and the pleasure of being able to sit down and and know that something's going to work right away and it's going to sound as good as it ever did. Um, it's fantastic, and the staff are great and. You know, so it's it, that was a very nice, very nice place to work. We did the initial um, rhythm tracks there. We did the initial uh, lead vocals and background vocals, and then I mixed sort of first pass mixing on all the songs. And then while we were still in London, and this actually I haven't gotten to do a lot, but it was really a big advantage. We took the songs into a dub stage uh, in England and listened to them, you know, in a theatrical environment and tweaked the mixes. Um, and then I was able to come home and, you know, further tweak them and massage them and refine them, uh, at my own place. But so I had already heard them in a big studio. I mean, in a big dub stage, yeah. um, you know, and this was a decision we made early on. And, and this is something that is, you have to make a decision pretty early on. Everything we mixed was in the box, um, uh, and it had to be that way because, you know, I'd go to London for 10 days and have to mix there mm-hmm. on one, you know, in one room, right. one set of speakers and one console. And then I'd come home and mix in my little vibe here at home. And then I'd be <laughs> at Abbey Road and then I'd be there. And yeah. always you have to be able to go click, click. Yep. So, you know, I take a I take a clone of my boot drive with me wherever I go. Okay. Um, and... Uh, I always, I always get wherever I am. I always get them to get me a UAD card. Okay. Um, and then you know all my plugins are on the are on the uh, clone drive. So the only hardware I really need besides Pro Tools is a uh, is a UAD card and a small mixing surface. What well, what is it about the UAD plugins? You know, what do you like about those? That I I, I mean I I definitely see people who have been longtime users, and I think you yourself have been. A big uh, support. I've been using, uh, I actually have been. And, you know, oddly, uh, you and I got hooked up initially through um, through UAD. 
Oh, okay, um, with Martina. Oh, you might. Well, it was Martina. It mm-hmm. was Martina, but Martina yeah. was contacted by Erica McDaniel. You know what the thing is, is when you have tools like what, what they're doing, uh, I, I mean, it's hard not to say that, that, that their, their software, their plugins is not influencing how you work. I mean, there's a, it, I mean I'd love to hear about it. It is absolutely. Yeah. It, it is absolutely. And I, and I, you know, my intention is unquestionably to, to spend a little, a few minutes talking about specifically that. Yeah, I'd love I to understand that. I wouldn't never claim, I would never claim, oh yeah, I only use all a, a UAD because that's just not true. Right. Yeah. Um, I use, I use a huge palette of, of plugins, but what UAD brings is, and I, and I started using them when they were very first coming out with their TDM before they had mm-hmm. a hardware card. Yeah. And they came forth with, um, uh, an LA-2A, an 1176, oh, yep. a Cambridge equalizer, <laughs> and a, oh, there was a fourth, I can't remember what the fourth one was now, mm-hmm. um, but I still use, I mean, I can't use the TDM anymore, those are long gone, yeah. I still use all three of those, uh, oh, it was a, it was a, a Lang, a Pultec, oh, okay. a, a Pultec equalizer. Okay. I still use all those plugins. They've really improved them over the years because DSP has gotten so much better. Mm-hmm. Um, but but what I find is, uh, you know, if I go to Capital Studios and I get a Fairchild there, I know it's going to sound great. It's been well maintained, right? And it's going to sound great. But I'm lucky if I can get two channels, usually just one. Mm-hmm. Um, if I know that if UAD has sampled or modeled, I should say, the the um, Fairchild, mm-hmm. they've done it with a really good one, and they've done it with great care, and now I can use fifty of them if I want to. <laughs> right. Um, and and that you know that sounds silly almost, but when you consider that the process for film mixing. Um, Everything goes down to stems that are, you know, each stem is a 5.1 stem. So it could be drums and then bass and then uh, mm-hmm. strings and winds orchestra, then brass orchestra, maybe two sets of percussion. Um, each lead vocal has to have its own stem. Uh, you can see what I'm getting at here. There might be 20. I mean, do you, do you ever max out? I mean, is there a limit? Uh, yeah. I mean, the Pro Tool system I have. Uh, has 512 voices, and I've come close to using it up. Oh my gosh! Yeah. But I could also get an, you know, I could get a third card mm-hmm. uh, and get 700 and whatever it is. Right. Uh, so I mean, yes, you can max it out, but you know, you gotta, you can really push it. Yeah. And the and one big advantage in the UAD system is that since it's on its own card, you're not using the host. Uh, right, the processor. Any, anything yeah. about the host. You're not yeah. using the Pro Tools DSP, yeah. and you're not using the computer, the host's DSP. Um, and, and so it becomes really valuable. If I want to use, uh, you know, if I want to crush some drums with 1176s, which is a nice classic old sound, yep. I, need six, I need six of them because it's a 5.1 stem. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there are not very many studios in anywhere in the world where you can get six 1176s that all sound alike and they all trigger exactly alike. And with the UAD, you can literally put six of them right there on the, you know, on the stem, on the bus. Mm-hmm. And it really does a good job. I wouldn't say it sounds exactly the same, but it's damn close. Oh, good. No, I was just going to say, as the years have gone by and DSP has gotten 
you know, less expensive and, and uh, larger scale, you know, they went back on the, for example, with the 1176, they went back on their original modeling and they included, they include now the input and the output transformers. So the sound is that much mm. closer. Um, whereas originally it was the, you know, it was the compression circuitry, mm -hmm. um, you know, so, and similarly with the Fairchild and all this other classic old gear. And there's right. a lot of, a lot of classic stuff that I use from them. Uh, Helios uh, 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 equalizer and the, you know, 140 plate and the 250 plate. Yep. Um, I still use that original Cambridge equalizer. I love it. On <laughs> uh, uh, you know, yeah. There's other things I love, but I just love the way it sounds. It's, you know, open and wonderful. Yeah. What, what can you say about, uh, I was curious about the translation of from what you're hearing on the scoring stage and getting the stereo imagery, because something I really enjoyed about this film is that there's space. It to me, and my, I think it speaks so loudly about how Alan uh, writes his music that it, it feels like he just lets stuff hang in the air. And I, I get a sense of what is the technology today? Is there any advantage of where we are today versus when it, when in '91 in terms of what we can do now spatially with the music? Well, you know, there's advantages all the way around. Um, in '91. For one thing, in 91, the theater systems were nowhere near. Right, yeah, absolutely. As a matter yeah. of fact, you know, it was left, center, right, and a mono surround. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Generally, there was no such thing as, you know, these side speakers. And I mean, you know, the, the, and the, the physical speakers have gotten better and the, yep. you know, the projectors have gotten better. So there's that whole level. And then, um, and the playback systems are better than what the original mag was although mag had a nice warmth to it sure but then also on our level as i as i said you know um when i when i hand over uh stems that may be 20 stems wide there's an enormous amount of clarity I, I, i'm sort of working backwards because that's mm -hmm. once everything has already been recorded as I'm mixing, you know, there's a lot of clarity that you can get out of the fact that there have been separate passes uh, and that, you know, everybody's gone through this a million times. We've edited it so that, you know, all those various different passes and the vocals and the backgrounds fall mm -hmm. not on a not on a metronomic grid, but in a musical uh, in a musical grid, if you will. Yeah. Um, and then working backwards from there. um, there's a huge advantage in being able to do those MIDI mock-ups of the orchestration. So if Alan writes something and uh, Michael Cosrin sort of does a rough arrangement and then it goes to an orchestrator, um, that orchestrator will then turn over uh, his work via MIDI mm -hmm. and somebody, either the orchestrator's guy or Chris Benstead, um, will essentially map out MIDI of that exact orchestration. So mm -hmm. now we all kind of know pretty close to what it's going to sound like before we've recorded it. Mm. And then if they put it in the movie in a, in a temp and Bill hears it and goes, you know, it's too thick there, it's not thick enough there, or I want more drama there, then they can go back in and still continue to tweak the arrangement all the way up until the orchestra's been recorded, which, which in this case was a year. Yeah. Know? I mean, they film. They finished filming. I, I'm not positive about this, but I think they finished filming in July or August of 2015. Okay, amazing. And then from then until the middle of last year, 
they were in post and they were editing and demos were being made and orchestrations and arrangements and more demos. Yeah. And by the time we got to recording it, it was, you know, third or fourth generation many times. I mean, were, were, were you, that, I mean, was this, was, yeah, no, absolutely. It, it's incredible. I mean, were you fully, was this your full-time job? I mean, is there any other time? That no. You, yeah. Okay. It wasn't. Um, you know, it was in big clusters. Uh, I was in London five times last year mm-hmm. uh, for a total of, I don't know, maybe, I, I never added it up, but eight, yeah. maybe eight weeks or 10. And then I must have spent three or four months, you know, if you add it all up yeah. in, here in my studio at home. Okay. Um, so it was, a, it was a lot of time. I mean, you know, consider that a regular movie without, not a musical. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you may score, score for a week and mix in two weeks and you're finished. Right. Um, uh, a music, even a musical, um, let's, let's just put it this way. This was a big project. <laughs> I mean, for you, like, uh, it, when did, when are you done? I mean, when you hand it off to the re-recording mixers, are you done or are you still following it to the stages? Are you there um, during the mix? I, 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 I didn't go to the stages, um, much. First, first of all, most of it was done in New York and I was here, okay. but, um, but, uh, between temps so they did their first mix in maybe september yeah and then we did some more work and some more mixes and there were you know notes about ooh, you know this vocal still doesn't sound quite right and what can we do about that so there was that work um and then uh at the last minute we had those three songs added so there was that work (laughs) um and that literally that was up until god i want to say maybe the end of january I mean, how is that possible? I mean, when they have such a heavy animation load to carry because those songs are by... Oh, well, the animation the animation's all going on concurrently. I mean, it was done. They, largely done a long time ago. I mean, the only thing that wasn't yeah. really done, to my knowledge, was the end credits. Oh, and even those were done some time ago. Yeah. But that doesn't mean you can't change... I mean, you can't change editing. Right. You can change mixes. Yeah. You know? Okay. I mean, it would have been disastrous if somebody had suddenly say said, you know, um, you know, we need to put that verse back in right. that we took out a year and a half ago. Yep. That would be impossible. Okay. Um, but there was still a lot of refining and massaging and remixing and tweaking and, oh, gosh, you know, can we just get a little more of those trombones and okay. hit it a little harder? Hey, you know, we'll add some of the MIDI back in and, you know, beef it up. I mean, there's just, it's an ongoing process, and that was largely between me and Matt uh, and Chris mm-hmm. and uh, Bill Condon. Okay. Um, you know, where Bill would say, hey, I can kick ass a little more, or Matt would listen to it, you know, for the umpteenth time and go, man, you know, I just sort of miss in the demo, the the low end kicked ass, and can't we you know, do something about that? <laughs> and we're talking about Beauty and the Beast, the, the bottom end of Beauty and the Beast. I mean, it's pretty, it's, it's yeah. <laughs> great that you guys have that, have that dedication and love for this material that you are living with for a long time. So, I mean, it's nice to imagine. We lived with it for a long time. I mean, but... Uh, I, I'm just gonna say, like, it's not—it's not really that. It's—it's it's a pretty amazing material to be living with for so long because these songs are so well done, and Alan's work is just so beautiful. So he's—he's he's pretty great. So, did you like the movie? Oh, I loved it. I—I <laughs> I, well, here's the Where thing. Where did you see it? Uh, I mean, I saw it here. I'm in the Bay Area, and you know, I saw it in just a, you know the big Cineplex XD, and um, right. But honestly, when I came back home afterwards, I, you know, I, I went onto iTunes and I looked at the, the soundtrack. And now listening just to the music, 
is that a different mix or is that the same mix that ended up in the film? Is there any difference of the soundtrack? So that versus... is a little bit of, I, I was going to say, so okay. that when you asked me, you know, what can I still be doing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, as as late as November and December, we were mixing the record. Okay. Um, so there's a few spots where there's actually edits that are different okay. um, in terms of, uh, like, for example, I think it's... Uh, 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 Gaston, the song Gaston. Yep. There was a verse that had been taken out okay. for the movie because it was just playing a little too long. We put that verse back in and we had to fake a lot of the music because <laughs> it was taken out so long ago that uh-huh. we never recorded the full orchestra. Oh, uh, okay. So there's that. And then on Bell, there were several versions for the record because, you know, we initially took out a lot of the dialogue and a lot of the talk and then. Mm. You know, Bill wanted some of it back in, and mm-hmm. you know, so we we went around and around on that. So I spent oh uh, a month or six weeks taking my film mixes, mm. and then um, you know tweaking them for stereo because they, you know, they play pretty well in stereo, but they don't play like oh wow he mixed the record. Do you know what I mean? In yep. other words, if you just take the straight five one mix and fold it down to stereo, it's pretty good. Yeah, it's a good representation, but it isn't. You know, it isn't what you would call a final mix. So, what are the, some of those considerations when you get when you fold it down to a stereo? What what types of things is is it a matter of levels or panning or just overall? Your uh, small a little changes? bit of both. Things yeah. things speak differently. Um, you know, you you have to depend more on vocals. You know, okay. if there are things that. When you see them on the screen, you might forgive. Sure. That when you're not seeing it on the screen, it's really got to be like just nailed. Yeah. Um, also, now here's here's a big thing that people don't generally think of. So the vocals, no matter how good the singer was, when you know they they've done those vocals ahead, of, you know, before they shoot. Right. Then they shoot. Then they maybe tweak the vocals. Once you put that whole vocal together and you get your final edit of the movie, then somebody has to go back and really lip sync it because yeah even though they sang along with themselves it's not perfect and you know damn well when you see yeah you know when you see a, a, a pop video sure you can nail it when they're you know when they're not lip synced well yeah and when you're on a you know a 90 or 100 foot s- screen <laughs> it's really got to look good or it yeah. takes you out of the movie yeah but then a lot of times that means that you don't have them singing as as pocketed with the music as they originally were so we've got to then unravel all the lip syncing Mm -hmm. and then in many cases there's been a little bit of massaging either eq wise or pitch Mm -hmm. pitching wise yep after the lip syncing was done so then you've got to go back and say "Ooh, that sounds a little out of tune or right was that her best take for that word we had to use that take for the movie because it looked better but Mm -hmm. maybe there's a better take you know what I mean? So yeah, yeah, yeah. there's a lot of that that goes on if you have the time, if you're given the time. Yeah. Uh, and in this case, you know, we were given the time. Mm. You know, thank- thankfully, because yeah. I think Dis- Disney is expecting this is going to live a long time. The, the original from 91 still holds up. I mean, it's incredible to see it reimagined. But yet yeah. there's there's so many great moments that... That I that were like, oh, I forgot about that moment, that line, that little even flurry like there's small things that r- brought me right back and for you guys like right what was there i mean just i think what i asked before was like you know what did you go back to the original masters like did you have those resources what was archived no we didn't i mean we 
Matt and I listen to them just to sort of see, you know, like, what do we think? I mean, yeah. what is the perspective of the vocal to the music? But, you know, back in those days, and especially with that, you know, with that kind of animation, the vocals were really loud. We were trying to mix Gaston and wondering, you know, is he too loud? Is the music too loud? Yeah, yeah. And we listened to the original. You can't even hear the music. Yeah. I mean, you literally can barely hear it's the music. Just his it's voice, all, yeah. Like you hear a little flute and, and and some snare drums in the background, and it's all voice. Yeah. And it's really slapsticky. Yeah. Um, you know, so we didn't play it that way. Um, we really tried to make the vocals be out in front, but still surrounded by the music. I mean, if there was one song for you, which one technically or potentially was challenging, but yet you guys were able to make it stick, make it feel right, what, some of those ones that we the audience would not have been aware well, of? Well, I would say, you know, the opening the opening song, Bell, you know, was okay. enormously challenging because it's like five or six minutes long and there's a hundred people singing. So uh, how do you cast those people even? We had, we had little vocal snippets for every one of those... Mm-hmm. You know all the little commentary in the in the uh, the shout outs and everything, the, yeah. Uh, Flower Mart, yep. All the little shout outs. I mean, every single thing has to be handled. And one of the things that is in Alan's um, writing style and in Michael Kozarin's arrangements mm-hmm. is that a lot of those vocals overlap. Right. Um, you know, towards the end of that, you still have to be able to hear all of it, and it's a it's a very tricky compromise to be able to hear one person who's saying, you know, uh, I need some eggs, and, and then the next <laughs> character says that's too expensive. And, uh-huh. and, and you have to be able to hear all of it. You know, that cheese, it smells. Right. You know, well, all those little lines, they all overlap. Mm. And so it's a real challenge to, you know, to be able to make everything play mm-hmm. um, and be understood. So that, so, I mean, in just in terms of, you know, a giant piece of work, that one, and also uh, Be Our Guest. Oh, sure. Um, I mean, it's just, wow, there's a lot of stuff going on. (laughs) How how big was your choir? Uh, We had different size choirs, um, but by and large, the the sort of big choir was a group of, uh, I want to say 50 maybe, 40 or 50. Wow. And, And a lot of times we would, you know, had men and women, and then we'd sort of rehearse it everybody singing together and then separate the men from the women mm-hmm. um but then we also had the smaller groups that we did um of like the townspeople more specific and more you know sort of vocal close up sure from what we had done originally at uh, british grove two years ago okay so we always had some different sort of elements and distances and roominess to play with mm-hmm. to balance Hmm. And and again, it's complicated, you know. <laughs> you, you guys make it so easy when, when, as an audience member, you can just sit back and enjoy it and be yeah. and be pulled into it. <laughs> Thank but you very much. Yeah, no, it's it's incredible, and that, that's why I look forward to listening to more of the soundtrack because the heart and the really the wonderful aspect of what Alan has done, and then reimagining it, and just uh, it's even the new songs. I that was one of the comments I. Made to my wife, which was like those songs. A lot of times, you could be like, "Ah, I don't know if we really need them. Why? Why don't we just stick with what we're used to?" And to be honest, I, I just loved those additions because it just by doing that, you gave a little more background on the characters and some other opportunities to. It's true. Slow down and spend time with with these these people. And I think that's maybe part of the reason that you know everybody from Bill to Alan to 
you know, uh, Mitchell Lieb to, you know, uh, everybody yeah. um, paid so much attention to the lyric and the and the arrangement and the form and what's the chorus because everybody is nervous. You know, <laughs> Jeez, we've got this thing that we've got yeah. this thing that was perfect in 1991. And, you know, we're really mucking with it. And you throw a new song in there, it damn well better be good. Yeah. Um, and then you start second guessing. And, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. I'm sure you can imagine all that. Yeah. So, yeah. but, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm really happy with it. I'm very proud of this project. It's exciting for it to, to come out opening weekend. I mean, what is it like for you to kind of be a fly in the wall, seeing people's reactions and even not having an opportunity to go back and it's, make any changes. I got to say, it's it's pretty thrilling. And, you know, we're done. I, I saw it. Uh, I was at the premiere here in Los Angeles a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. And, you know, still there were a couple of spots where I thought, oh, God, <laughs> I wish I'd done that just that yeah. little bit differently. But, you know, John Lennon said the same thing about A Day in the Life. So right. I guess I'm good, in good company. Oh, my gosh. Um, yeah. So, you know, and, and we're... You know, Disney is so happy with it. They've got a bunch of stuff in the pipeline with Alan. You know, um, I think we're going to do um, two or three more of his, you know, iconic movies. Oh, great. In this sort of live action CGI way. Yeah. I, I mean, that's what I, I just saw. Like, I, I was like, I can see this, see this version uh, on Broadway. Like that, that to me makes a lot of sense. Just like Lion King. I can see it in theme parks. I can see this music coming up in so many places that the the, new, the opportunity for a new audience. I, th- I feel like people who saw it when they were kids are now having their own kids and and just having another opportunity to just share it. So most definitely, yeah, yeah. It just continue. I mean, my oldest kid, my oldest kids are not quite old enough. I mean, they saw it, but they didn't see it first run. Uh, my my oldest kid was born in 1990. Okay, so. He probably saw it, you know, maybe when he was five. Sure. Um, so, you know, a few years after it came out. But, yeah, you're right. I mean, there's a there's a lot of people, you know, a lot of people that their parents saw it. And, you know, it's, it's a big deal. And I'm really proud to say, you know, it's not one of those things where you go, oh, God, the sequel. They just, they should have left well enough alone. Yeah. I mean, I like this movie. I mean, I'm partial because I didn't work on 91. But, um yeah. I like this movie better than the 91 version, so. Oh, that's great. Well, I mean, f- for you, Frank, uh, what what does the rest of your year look like? What do you want to next? What What's going to consume the next two plus years of your life? Well, uh, it's a good question. Um, I'm, I'm mixing, uh, I'm mixing the underscore for The Mummy, the Tom Cruise movie. Oh, yeah. Starting, actually starting tomorrow. Oh, gosh, okay. Uh, for about 10 days. Uh-huh. And then I'm happy to say I'm taking a little time off and I'm taking my 17-year-old daughter and we're going to go on some college tours. Okay, good. Uh, where I'm going to end up in New York and hang out with Alan some, which that'll be nice. Yeah. Um, I'm, going to take, I'm going to take my daughter up to his place in upstate. And oh, how fun. We'll hang out there for a little bit. But then um, I've got a little time down and then I think, fingers crossed, um, we're going to start up on another one of Alan's things. Amazing. Uh, maybe as soon as the summer. And that could be another, you know, long project. So cool. Well, you know, I just, I just have to say, Frank, it's, it's a lot of fun just to have a chance to see it and talk with you and give some more context to all the work that you and the rest of your team and Alan and everyone else put into it because these things are, it's truly a team effort. I can imagine for you, you've, you know, I think you've coming in, you, you want to really see 
Alan's vision through and, and obviously your expertise and being able to collaborate and also then, like you said, take it back to your home studio and just live with it and not have not have well, that's, other you know, influences. That's why I said to you, you know, 45 minutes ago, I love being part of that process. Yeah. Um, you know, my the whole joy that I get from doing this is, you know, that collaborative feeling when you've got great music and great musicians and you're in a great studio and the and the and Disney lets us go and do it, you know. Nobody ever said, you know, you're spending too much time on that mix. Yeah. You know? It was like, man, this sounds great. Can you just tweak this and that a little bit? Sure, of course I can, you know. <laughs> and that's a that's a dream come true for for somebody in my situation, you know. And that's why I said I liked I like the challenge. I like to dig my teeth into something that I know is not gonna be you know, done in two weeks. Yeah. Um, and that lots of people are going to have their hands on. And yeah. it just, it's better for all of that, for, in my opinion. I just can't imagine that they would, you know, you never know, but like they did the animated version. They've done the live a- action version in 3D. I don't see them going back to this this story and redoing it. So I feel like in a way you guys had your hands in something that I think will be you know, enjoyed for a long time. I would hope so. I, I can't imagine. I, I, I think you're right, and I certainly hope so. Yeah. I mean, I, I've been really fortunate. I did the first Pixar movie, you know, uh, uh, Toy Story. Toy Story, War, yeah. Uh, which is, you know, still iconic. And when uh, I was joking about the 20-year legacy, but yeah, Disney Animation, is they're doing these, you know, every, every film that that turns 20, they, they go back and they, they make a CD with all the underscore that was never put out. and. Yeah outtakes and you know and man when i listened back to it it was like god it just took me right back there yeah the 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 writing was spectacular and the and and the playing was great and man that movie is still wonderful yeah you know so and then to have done you know half a dozen movies with alan and Mm. and really to be able to among other things you know count him as a good friend yeah uh that means a lot to me i loved uh to hear about these stories of what you guys were up to and yeah this is a pleasure yeah thank you very much thanks for tuning in and listening to my chat with scoring mixer frank wolf to hear about his work on disney's beauty and the beast you can hear more conversations with sound designers composers and directors on the soundworks collection podcast on itunes and streaming online at soundworkscollection.com <laughs>